0: There's a quotation from the great uh, philosopher, or perhaps you'd call him a contemplative, uh, J. Krishnamurti, who said, freedom comes from seeing what is true, not from our efforts to be free, which I came to appreciate quite a lot. Freedom comes from seeing what is true, not from our efforts to be free. So our efforts, our heartfulness, our endeavor goes towards seeing what is true, seeing what is true from moment to moment. And tonight I'd like to talk about that very famous list in Buddhist teaching called the five hindrances, because so often that is what is true. And is often what we are experiencing in our practice because it is a reflection of what we so often experience in our lives. These qualities are known as hindrances because they distract us, they make us forget what perhaps we might really care about more fully or maybe more than anything, we forget because we get lost in one of these states or more than one of these states at a time. They're called hindrances because they make it quite difficult for us to concentrate. Because they undermine our our sense of, of values. And these are grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. I myself, when I first heard this list, felt tremendously reassured. I thought, oh, good. <laughs> you know, it's a list. It's on a list. It's on an old list. In fact, it's on an ancient list. The Buddha talked about this. Therefore, it's not just me. You know, this is a known thing. In the body of knowledge, of the mind, and its evolution, and our challenges, and our confrontations, and our suffering, and our freedom, this is a list, <laughs> So I felt really good after that. And before I go into the hindrances themselves, I want to talk about what I sometimes call three visionary statements of the Buddhas that form the context within which we look at all of these different states. And many of these will be familiar to you, but it's a particular casting um, in light of the hindrances. The first is that very famous statement of the Buddhas where he said, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. So the important thing about that statement, of course, is that these forces of greed and jealousy and anger and fear and that long, long list are only visiting. In some way, one could say they're not who we actually are. If we knew ourselves authentically, more completely, this is not what we would discover at our core. They're visiting. They're not inherent to our being. They're adventitious. They arise out of conditions coming together. Whether they visit a little bit, or they visit a lot, or they visit what seems to be incessantly, they're still only visiting. They come and they go. And I like that image a lot, because I could imagine myself right away just you know, sitting happily at home, minding my own business, and there's this knock at the door. So I get up, and I go open the door, and there's fear, or jealousy, or anger, or greed, or one of those qualities. And I say, welcome home. It's all yours. It's like I forget who actually lives there. Or, of course, we can and often do have the completely opposite tendency, where we are so ashamed, and so distraught, and so distressed, and so frightened at the arrival of these states that we quickly shut the door, trying to pretend they never came, trying to have them go away through the force of our dislike, our distaste. And of course what happens is that we do that and it doesn't really work. They then decide to come in through the window or come down the chimney or something. Somehow they arrive So I often think of one of, almost like you could say, the skills training of meditation practice is being knowing what to do when we open that door. Can we relate to that visitor as a visitor? Can we remember they don't actually live there? They're coming and going. They're born out of conditions. Can we relate with awareness? Can we relate with some compassion, some tenderness, right in that moment? then we can be free, even if the visitors come by quite a lot. And that is a very important understanding to hold. I once, in a a complete, um, kind of vast oversimplification of a a very great Tibetan practice, I suggested, um, I think it was here, I suggested to the group here that uh, when we opened the door, we could even invite those visitors in for a meal. Like, keep an eye on them so they don't take over the house and wreck it, but have a kind of cordiality, like, okay, you know, I'll hang out with you a while till you go on your way. And uh, someone in the group didn't like that. And they called out and said, how about tea to go? And I said, okay, tea to go, <laughs> you know, that's fine but there's something in there. It's not succumbing. It's not saying, oh, great, take over. It's all yours. And yet it's not reacting with that kind of hostility and rejection and resentment. How can we be when we open that door so that we remember who actually lives here? Where do we abide? So that's the first of the statements of the Buddha. The second is also a very famous statement of the Buddha's, where he said, in a way that is so very often misinterpreted. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only that is suffering and the end of suffering. I teach one thing and one thing only that is suffering and the end of suffering. And One of my friends, who is a great wit, once said, well, suffering and the end of suffering are two things, not one thing. And <laughs> Why did he say that was one thing? <laughs> um, but sometimes it is kind of one thing, because its it's in our open-hearted, um, unashamed, unafraid acknowledgement of the suffering that is, that we do come to the end of the suffering. You know, and sometimes that statement, uh, well, it's certainly often misunderstood, you know, and, and people forget the second part and um, about the end of suffering. And, and uh, there's so much feeling about the Buddhist teaching being kind of pessimistic and depressing and fixated on suffering and ignoring the joy in life. And once I was reading The New Yorker uh, many years ago, and there was an article on Buddhism in which the author said, according to the Buddha, the purpose of life is to suffer. (laughs) And I thought, oh, yeah, sign me up for that. That sounds really good, you know. I mean, of course, he didn't say that the purpose of life was to suffer, but that life includes suffering. This is a truth and we're freed by seeing the truth of what is. And that statement about suffering and the end of suffering is also used almost as a kind of grid, or um, I guess you'd say grid, through which to view our experience so that certain states, certain feelings, certain habits of mind, certain reactive patterns are all about suffering. They're suffering for us, they're suffering for others, as we act out on them, their suffering as we remember them. Those are states of, of pain. So when we look at our own anger and fear and jealousy, can you imagine not calling those states wrong or bad or improper or horrible? And not considering ourselves terrible people for having them come up. But rather to actually sense that these are states of suffering. So that rather than having that sense of rejecting or trying to annihilate parts of our experience, what if we could see them as states of suffering and have that kind of compassion for ourselves in that light? It would be different. And that becomes the base for, as we look around us, as we look at the world, remembering that just as our anger and and being filled with it is a state of suffering, so too is that experience for others when they are lost in those ways. And so compassion becomes a much more ready response as... As we look around, so it's the second statement of the Buddha's. It's like the retranslation from good and bad and right and wrong and good and evil to that which causes suffering and that which brings us to the end of suffering. So when we notice those states that bring us to the end of suffering, there's joy, there's delight, there's rejoicing, there's celebration, there's an enhancement of those states like metta, like love, like compassion, like wisdom, like awareness. And then the third visionary statement of the Buddhas was a very simple one, which was that all beings everywhere want to be happy. We all just want to be happy. We want to feel at home in this body and in this mind. We want and to feel that we're part of something greater than our limited sense of self. We want that sense of belonging. We all want that. And the problem is not in the wanting, in that sense, in, in that urge. The problem is in ignorance, in so very often not having any real sense of, of where happiness is to be found. And so we struggle, and we suffer. As one of my friends put it, our problem is that we have really bad aim. (laughs) And remembering that we're not so different from one another. And even when we make some terrible mistakes because of ignorance, because of not knowing or not remembering, we can, in a way, kind of give ourselves a break you know, and practice that kind of, of understanding and forgiveness. That is ignorance that beguiles us, that leads us astray, that confuses us again and again. But we really all do want to be happy. So this is the context in which we look at the particular forces that so often arise in the course of meditation practice. Grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Sounds like a day, a really full day here. (laughs) And again, you know, they come up here because they are part of the fabric of life. They're part of our, our experience. I'd always find it so amusing if I was Sitting a retreat and you know working as hard and and as fully and as completely as I could with all of the many things that come and go, and then I'd you know go somewhere at the end of the retreat and and visit somebody and and run into somebody who wasn't into meditation at all, and in their minds, it was like a complete vacation, you know and they'd say. Wow, you know, like, must have been incredibly restful. (laughs) And I say, well, it was a little challenging sometimes. And they say, what could be challenging? You're not doing anything. But it's challenging. And yet, to learn to hold all of these forces in a different light is really like a revolution in our lives because we can't seem to prevent their arising. And we suffer so much when they do distract us, when they have us forget what we really care about, when we just kind of repetitively go round and round and round uh, because of their force. And yet, even with their constantly coming, we can be free. It's the most amazing thing. So, grasping, which is the first of the hindrances, it comes up a lot. Sometimes uh, we call it, if only, mind. If only I had brought another sweater, you know, then I'd be really happy. If only I had brought a different shawl, then I'd be enlightened. You know, if only it's this kind of emptiness inside, which is just yearning for something, anything. Sometimes it is a kind of yearning for what we don't actually have. Sometimes it's, it's a kind of insistence on what we do have never changing. So in the uh, immortal words of, of Trungpa Rinpoche, who was one of the first Tibetan lamas to bring... Um, Tibetan Buddhist teaching to America, who I think, um, you know, it was quite a revelation kind of coming to the West and having all of these Western people sort of display their conditioning to him. One of his favorite sayings was, good luck. (laughs) You know, so people would tell him some kind of story or something, and he would say, good luck. (laughs) So you think about how often we try to hold on. The Buddha used a very, very homey example for this. He said when we try to hold on to that which must inevitably change it's like trying to hold on really tight to a revolving wheel. At some point in the cycle we are bound to get run over because everything changes, everybody changes. It all changes. So attachment or grasping is not the same as enjoyment. It's not the same as a, a full, open-hearted experience. It's that other thing we do when we want to be in control, when we want to stop change from happening. Many years ago, um, I was here, and I don't know how many of you have walked the loop, the three-mile walk, you know, uh, around the the pond. Um, but I was walking that, it was autumn, and it happened to have been a beautiful, resplendent, just gorgeous autumn, and I was walking every day, and a friend of mine from California called me and said that she was going to come visit, and she'd never been to the East Coast, she'd never seen an autumn, anything like what we have here, so I got really excited, and then I was walking the loop every day, and I noticed, I would, I would kind of look around at the leaves on the trees, and I would think, don't you fall off those trees, <laughs> you know, she's never seen an autumn. If she comes and, you know, it's just like these little brown shriveled leaves on the ground, you know, it's not going to be too glorious, and, and I, would, I would walk the next day and think, don't you fall off <laughs> those trees. And, You know, this went on for a little bit, and then she called me, and she said something had come up so that she couldn't come visit. And one of my first reactions was, oh, good. Now I can let the leaves fall from the trees, you know. And in trying to understand the nature of grasping or attachment, which is not that easy to understand, you know, because the words are are very difficult, and and it's hard to quite get um, just what is meant. I've gotten into the habit of substituting control, the word control, for the word attachment every time I'm trying to sort of feel my way into that state. And I think it's a good approximation. It's like trying to live in defiance of the truth of change. And so we struggle. We experience it quite often in meditation practice. I can remember not in the very beginning of my practice, which was quite difficult, um, physically painful and emotionally painful, uh, but later on, as things sort of smoothed out, and I would sit. I was living in India at the time, and um, I would meditate. And when I'd meditate, pretty much, I would have these these really beautiful rapturous feelings, and um, I felt like I was floating in the air, and I was so delighted, and and I, hadn't, I never really planned ever to come back here and live. Um, but as I was sitting, I would start fantasizing about coming to visit in maybe 10 years in exactly that state. And I would think, oh, isn't it going to be wonderful living the entire rest of my life in just this state, like floating in the air? And it's going to be so beautiful. And you know, in 10 years or so, I'll be back in New York, kind of floating down the streets. And it'll be so wonderful. And, and then every time, something would happen. My back would start hurting, or I'd get a little bored, or my knees would start hurting, or I'd get sleepy or something. And every time, it would break the state, and I would blame myself. What did you do wrong to make that beautiful state go away? Were you breathing too hard? You know, Were your eyes shut too tight? What did you do wrong? But of course, it didn't go away because I had done anything wrong. It went away because everything goes away. Everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. This is the, the truth of the life that we live. So rather than clinging and holding on and hating everything that comes that seems to be competitive to that one thing and, and holding it still, we can practice letting go and enjoying and allowing change all at the same time. So that's the the first of the hindrances. And the second is sort of the opposite of that, which is aversion, which is anger and fear. And I've always found it quite interesting that anger and fear in the Buddhist psychology are considered exactly the same mind state Anger being the expressive, outflowing, energized form. Fear being the held-in, frozen, imploded form. But they're just the same state. And I've often used that trick, too, when I'm trying to understand anger. Sometimes I substitute fear in my mind. And then see what my understanding comes to. The nature of of both those states is to strike out against what's happening, to declare it unbearable, to try to separate from it. And it's natural in many situations for this to arise. The question becomes, does it dominate? Does it take us over? Does it define who we are, what we're capable of? Does it have us once again forget the truth of change? Imagine being quite angry at yourself for the last you know, stupid thing you said somewhere or the time that you didn't have the courage to say anything at all, and it really would have been much better to speak out in some way. To understand the nature of anger means looking at how it functions in our minds. When we're really angry over that comment we made, say, how often do we remember the 50 good things we did that very same day? Or our potential for growth, for change? Usually we don't. Everything telescopes down into that terrible moment when we opened our mouths, or we didn't. Everything else is as though erased or annihilated. So that's one of the characteristics of being lost in the state of anger. It's tunnel vision. We cannot actually recollect in those times the bigger picture of who we are, maybe who the other person is, of life itself as things are constantly moving, constantly changing. And this state, of course, comes up quite a lot in meditation because it comes up quite a lot in life. It's really just the same thing. And Mark told the story in in the last retreat about um, somebody who was sitting and uh, was very angry at the airplanes that were flying overhead and and went into the office and demanded that somebody write to, like, the president of United Airlines to get those flight patterns changed, you know, because their meditation was being ruined. You know, really? I mean, what do we think we're in control of anyway, you know? (laughs) And the ire and, and the forms of it, the irritation and the impatience and the frustration and the way we lash out against ourselves and against one another, it's really quite remarkable. But it comes up. It comes up quite a lot. And one of the things we are attempting to do, in a way, is through the process of mindfulness, is to actually capture the energy that's there, which is a very positive thing, that's forceful. It, it ends apathy, it ends complacency. It can be very clear to capture the energy of that and the, sometimes the discernment of that and yet not be lost in that kind of deluded cycle of constantly going round and round and round, being stuck. In that kind of tunnel vision, not being able to open up beyond it. I say that sometimes people, when they're angry, will speak the truth. You know, sometimes it's the anger that is arising in somebody that allows them to cut through kind of the conventional, say, etiquette of the group and actually say, no, this is unacceptable. This, you know, this can't be tolerated. Um, you know, that's the positive part of that state. It's that cutting through. And yet we all know what it's like and how consequential it is and how devastating it can be to have anger as our norm just to walk around in resentment and frustration, and when we're suffering, to want to make sure absolutely everybody else is suffering too. It's really a very terrible way to live. So to be able to, to capture that energy and that kind of clarity and that forcefulness without being subject to the uh, terrible ravages of, of being so lost in anger is, is really a tremendous thing and then we have as a hindrance sleepiness or sluggishness or um the literal translation is sloth and torpor which is very cute which we all know some of us know more than others but it's very very common sometimes when people come on retreat they basically just go to sleep you know we're busy, we're tense, we're stressed, we stop and it's like, you know, all of this starts rolling off of us and we just go to sleep. Sometimes the sluggishness or the kind of dullness of mind comes because it's our particular habit of avoidance. When something distressing is coming up, one of those visitors are coming to the door, um, we're getting uneasy in some way. Our habit is to become numb. It's basically to wrap ourselves in a cocoon of not feeling and not noticing, and just in effect to go to sleep. Sometimes we get really sleepy and sluggish because basically what's happening is pretty neutral. We're really, I think, quite addicted to intensity. We need intense pleasure or intense pain to wake us up and show us that we're alive. And if things, we're not, generally speaking, in this culture, highly trained to subtlety. And so when things are kind of neutral, they're not strikingly pleasant or unpleasant, we do tend to go to sleep. There's not enough juice there to to kind of elicit our wakefulness until we really train our attention towards subtlety, toward really feeling and knowing the texture, the flavor of experience, until we're trained to be really connected, no matter what is happening. The Buddha said that one who is heedful or one who is mindful is on the path to the deathless, while one who is heedless or one who is mindless is as if dead already, because we're just cut off. And we're not awake. And that becomes the habit of our minds. I can remember when I was practicing in India, and I was practicing for the first time in this tradition, pretty much, which emphasizes the use of mental noting or mental labeling where, as you know, we place a mental label on the predominant experience of the moment. So it's the breath in and out, or sensation, or thought, or whatever. And, and I was uh, encouraged, we were encouraged to place a mental label on our predominant experience throughout the day. So just walking throughout this compound in India, this Burmese monastery, we were, theoretically, we were labeling pretty much all the time. And I found that I was walking around this compound, and the single most common mental notation that I was making was that of waiting. I was just kind of going around saying to myself, waiting, 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 waiting. And one day I said to myself, what are you waiting for? And I realized that I was waiting for something exciting enough to happen, or important enough to happen, or or spiritual enough to happen so I could make a mental note of it. (laughs) And I realized that I was, in effect, living my life as though a tape recorder with the pause button on. I was waiting. And this is how we can be in the absence of intense pleasure or intense pain. We just kind of go to sleep. So that's another reason that sleepiness or sluggishness can arise. And sometimes it arises just as a kind of uh, energy imbalance. There's so much about balance as essential to our practice. It's really about balance. You know if we are in the habit, either just right now, or, or in terms of you know, a deeper conditioning, of really being cut off, of being removed, somewhat withdrawn from experience. Then through the, the course of the practice, we come forward some and we touch things more completely. And if we're in the habit of being overbearing and, you know, intense and strident, we relax some in the course of practice. Everything in the end is actually about balance. And as we work in the practice, there are times when, even though we're developing uh, many different kinds of, of very positive qualities, they're not happening in perfect balance. There's like one whole slate of qualities that we're developing that are about tranquility and calm and peace and letting go and quieting down. And, and there's another whole group of qualities that are about interest and enthusiasm and connection and investigation and energy itself, you know, and They're very different kinds of um, states. And in the end, it's a composite. We're working with all of them. But sometimes it's not happening in perfect sync. Whereas if the tranquility, calm, quiet side of things is stronger than the sort of up, energized, interested side of things, we go into this state which is traditionally known as sinking mind. We've all sunk into sinking mind at one time or another. And I, as, you know, as I said in, in the groups, I call it the ooze. And you just kind of ooze along. And you just, you know, it's sort of pleasant and foggy. And you don't really know what's going on, nor do you care at all. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of going. and um, It's not altogether a bad state at all, because it has that characteristic of the the quiet and the calm being developed quite genuinely, but it's out of balance. So what we experience is really just a sort of fog. And what we want to do is not lose the tranquility and the calm, but bolster the energy so that it's a better match. And we do that all kinds of different ways. The technique of mental noting here, too, is is often used because it adds just a little bit of energy to what's going on. It sort of wakes us up some. And I tell one of the groups this story about this time um, I was helping teach the three-month retreat, the long retreat we have every fall. And I came in to lead the 8.30 sitting with the instructions and the questions and answers. And I, I came in, sat down, closed my eyes, and... Um, right away I sort of went into the ooze and I was feeling my breath and sort of half asleep and, and maybe 20 minutes later I had the thought, well, maybe I should actually be noting the breath and not just feeling the breath. And so I started noting the breath in and out and it was like the clouds cleared and I realized I was sitting in front of 100 people who had been waiting 20 minutes for some instruction and I hadn't said anything. So I didn't say anything. And then we finished the sitting, and I rang the bell and I described what had happened. And I gave a very big plug for mental noting. I said, You know, I went into this state, which was like really out there. But the noting helps, you know. So it could be looking at the balance of the day, doing more walking than sitting. It could mean standing up. There are lots of different ways of just trying to raise energy and bring that into into a better balance. Then the next hindrance is, of course, the energetic opposite of that, which is restlessness. It's having too much energy for the amount of tranquility or calm or, or peace that is cooking at the same time. For many years, I was really... Much, much, much more subject to sleepiness than to restlessness in my practice. And when I was first sitting in India, I was so sleepy all the time, and except when I was in terrible pain, which woke me up. Um, and we would do these group interviews around around the teacher, and and people would describe these like insane restless fits, and I would think that sounds so interesting. You know, I wish I had some of that. You know, this is really hard, just being so sleepy. But, you know, wow, look what they're thinking. They're like, look at that. They've plotted out the next 50 years of their lives. You know, that's so great. And then, of course, when I actually had a fit of restlessness, I thought, this doesn't feel very good after all. You know, the positive part about it is the energy which is very, very positive. The problem is that the energy is not grounded, it's not channeled, it's not balanced. But you don't want to lose just like the sheer energy of it. Sometimes the restlessness is quite physical. I've had friends tell me um, that They were sitting in the meditation hall and they were like so restless. They felt like they would just jump out of their skin. So they stood up, picked up their zafu, moved to like the back end of the hall, sat down, started again, got so restless. They stood up, they picked up their zafu, moved to the other corner of the hall, you know, and they moved like four or five times in the course of a sitting. It was just like so jumpy. Sometimes the restlessness is really psychological or emotional. It's not so much a a physical rush. I don't know how many of you have seen um, if you've ever seen the television show Dharma and Greg. Uh, Dharma, of course, is, is the Sanskrit word for the Buddhist teaching or, or the truth of things. So there was a while when I almost felt a kind of professional obligation to try to watch it. Some, and uh, so I watched it. And uh, Dharma was a kind of hippie yoga teacher. Still is, I think. And uh, And Greg was maybe an attorney or a business person or somebody like that, you know, uh, much more uptight. And uh, there was one episode, which I happened to see, in which Dharma taught Greg how to meditate. So she gave him this meditation instruction, and then she left the apartment, and the camera follows Dharma as she goes shopping or meets her mother or something like that, and And the whole time she's thinking about the state of extraordinary bliss that Greg must be enjoying back in the apartment meditating. (laughs) And then finally she comes home and she opens the door and she says to him, how was it? And he's like completely frantic. And he says, first of all, he said, I couldn't stop thinking. First I thought, which long distance carrier should I switch to? (laughs) And then I thought, how fast do you have to drive to always stay in the sun? And then, you know, it was like, friends. actually, I used this example once. And when I left the hall, I had a whole bunch of notes telling me how fast you have to drive in order to stay in the sun. So I'd like to say right now, I don't care, <laughs> actually. It doesn't matter. I know it has something to do with the equator, but it's not my trip. It was his trip. You know, and he's just like completely frantic with just like this insane restlessness that had taken over his mind. And I loved that show. You know, I thought, how real is that? (laughs) Sometimes it's all about the future. You know, first I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, then I'm going to do that. And then sometimes it's all about the past. And interestingly enough, they say in the teachings that when restlessness is all about the past, it's usually about some kind of guilt some mistake we've made, um, something that comes up. And this happens so often in practice anyway, where out of nowhere, it's almost a kind of cleansing, um, out of nowhere something we did maybe a very long time ago comes up and we feel the pain of it. The Buddha said quite beautifully, if we truly loved ourselves we'd never harm another. And as we recollect the harm we have caused, part of that uh, feeling, that that understanding, is the lack of love for ourselves. And it's very painful. But there's also a distinction that can be made and and is made in the Buddhist psychology between what we would call guilt and what we might call remorse. Remorse being that acknowledgement of the pain, an ability in effect, to forgive ourselves and to move on with some energy and determination not to just act in those ways again. Whereas guilt is not so wholesome and is considered a kind of lacerating self-hatred where we just go over and over and over the thing we did or the thing that we said without being able to let go and move on. And so we're not left with the energy we need to actually make a change, we're just kind of debilitated. And therefore, it's not very skillful. My favorite story about that actually is uh, about Joseph. When um, we practiced in Burma together, and the way that interviews went in Burma uh, was that Saira Upandita, who was our teacher, would sit up in front of the room and you would go up to sit in front of him and describe your practice. And in the meantime the next person had probably already entered the hall and was sitting in the back of the room waiting their turn so that as soon as you got up they would come forward. So some number of people generally heard you know your whole story. And Joseph was just ahead of me so for three months I heard everything he said to Upandita and it was very interesting actually. And, um, one day he came in, and I could tell just from his tone of voice that he was having a hard time. And he seemed kind of down, distressed, and, and he said to Saito Pandita, I'm having a really bad experience. So, so Saito said, what is it? And Joseph said, um, out of nowhere, I had this memory of this time, I mean, God knows how long ago it had been, then maybe 30 years before, of, of this really, really bad thing I did about 30 years ago. And I'm just filled with so much pain at the recollection. And, and Upandita basically told him what I've you know just said, that there's a difference between guilt and remorse, and certainly feel the pain of it, because that's truthful, um, and then let go, and you know, move on with a determination to make a change. Don't just dwell there. And the whole time Upandita was talking to him, I was sitting there thinking... I wonder what Joseph did, you know, like, it sounds really bad, you know, and I wonder what he did, but we were on this silent retreat, so I couldn't really ask him what he'd done, and, you know, so time went on, probably two months went on, and, and we ended up leaving Burma together and flying to Bangkok, and that night at dinner, I leaned across the table, and I said, by the way... <laughs> That time when you were talking to Upandita and you just, you sounded so bad and you'd done something really bad like 30 years ago, like what did you do? And he said, oh, you know, I was like 16 years old and this girl in my class had a sweet 16 party and I didn't feel like going, so I didn't go. (laughs) And then it turned out that not many people went and, and she was just so crushed. And he said, you know, 30 years later, it just came back to haunt me. So I told that story once. We were teaching together in California, Joseph and I, and and it happened to be my birthday. Um, I told that story, and then that night after the talk, the staff of the retreat center gave me a birthday party, and Joseph came, and he said, I didn't really feel like coming. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I'm really tired, but... I figured in 30 years I'll be sitting, you know, and it'll suddenly come back that I didn't come to your birthday party. But anyway, that is guilt and remorse. We feel the pain of it for sure, but if we get lost in that cycle of guilt, we'll just get more and more restless, more and more agitated, and it won't really lead us anywhere in terms of balance, in terms of moving on. So when we feel all that energy of restlessness, either physical or psychological, we approach it in two ways, and they're almost opposite. So it's like an experiment. One way is to try to create a lot of space. Because when a really big energy is trying to move through a very tight, narrow space, it's going to be very jangled. Whereas if a really big energy is moving through a bigger space, It's much smoother. It's actually flowing. So all the things that we each come to know for ourselves create a sense of spaciousness. Sitting down, listening to sound, feeling our whole body, not trying to pinpoint a very precise sensation, being outside, doing walking, doing faster walking. And the other approach has to do with really trying to deepen the tranquility. Since the energy part is already there, we work with trying to just deepen the tranquility, to feel the breath as almost like a sensual experience, to be with the breath one at a time, to really simplify, to rely on structure, I once actually did make up a meditation all on my own, um, which was not loving kindness. But uh, when I was first sitting and noting, I decided for a while I was only, and this was a very good antidote for restlessness, I was only going to make two notes. One was breath, the other was not breath. And it didn't matter what the not breath was, whether it was the most beautiful thought in the world or the most shocking, disgusting thought in the world. It didn't matter, not breath. And that calmed me down. (laughs) So that kind of thing, relying on structure, relying on simplicity, will balance out the restlessness. And then the last of the hindrances is that of doubt. And in many ways, doubt is considered the most difficult of all because it is so incredibly seductive. Doubt appears as the voice of perfect reason. This is not worth doing. I can't do it. It only works if you could do it for three months. This is a horrible technique. And it just seems like the most logical, reasonable, intelligent, discerning voice in the world. And sometimes it is. You know, There, there are many different kinds of doubts that are talked about in the Buddha's teaching. One is an extremely positive kind of doubt which is almost at um, the essence of of Buddhist methodology. And that is to really question everything. Now when the Buddha said, don't believe anything, don't believe anything just because I say it, don't believe anything because a great elder has said it, don't believe anything just because you've read it in a sacred text, he said, put it into practice. Put it into practice and see for yourself what's true. So that insistence on knowing for ourselves, on not being gullible, not taking anything for granted, putting it into practice, checking it out, investigating, seeing for ourselves, is a very great kind of doubt. It's wonderful, and it's essential to question everything. But we have to question everything from the right stance, which is not so distant and aloof and cynical, Because, in a way, to put something into practice means to take a risk, to throw ourselves into something, to do it fully, and then assess, well, what does it mean to me? Is it something I want to pursue or not? Rather than standing apart from it the entire time, simply evaluating it. And here I love the story of, um, I say that when the Buddha himself became enlightened, he was, of course, sitting under a tree, And he spent the next 49 days in the immediate vicinity of that tree doing seven things for seven days each. He did walking meditation, they say, for seven days. And for seven days he happily contemplated the truth of dependent origination. And uh, I think very charmingly for seven days he gazed in gratitude at the tree for having sheltered him. And after 49 days, he got up and he started walking to a nearby town. And they say the first person who came upon him was so struck by his amazing radiance that he came up to him and he said, who are you? What are you? And the Buddha responded by saying, I'm awake. I'm an awakened one. And the man, in effect, said, eh, maybe. And he walked away. <laughs> and because I am completely a New Yorker, I like the eh, maybe part. You know, it's like, and that's good. You know, like, why believe that? That's an outrageous statement. I'm awake. You know, I'm an awakened one. Like, why believe that? But what if the man hadn't walked away? You know, what if he said, uh, oh, Maybe. And that had led him to a deeper investigation. What does it mean to be enlightened? Can anyone be awake? Can I be awake? Is there a path? That's a very different kind of questioning, you know, rather than just walking away. And so we have to be able to distinguish in our own experience, okay, what kind of doubt is it? And so often doubt is really just a mask for fear. You know, I can't do it. Everyone else can do it, but I can't do it. So it's not worth doing. It's like a child who's so discouraged, you know, or so dispirited that they just disdain what's going on around them. It's not worth having. I don't want it. It's very important to see doubt as doubt, because it will arise. It arises many, many, many times. Sometimes most particularly that kind of doubt about ourselves in whatever guise it's it's displaying. And to be able to set a context for which we can feel that it's appropriate to actually put something into practice, to check something out. Because you don't want to be constantly leaving the process say, how's it going, and then going back, and then how's it going, like every single second. It will be incredibly agitating and painful. To really be wholehearted, to do what we can do, and then see, then evaluate. Sometimes in in India, as I would embark on a course, you know, of ten days or something like that, I would say to myself, it's not a lifetime commitment. You know, I'm not being asked to surrender my integrity, my ability to, to discern to make a decision, all I need to do is do the practice for 10 days, and then see. So it's that kind of structure that will really support us, so that we can discover for ourselves what we feel to be true. So these are the hindrances of grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, And that's the context with which we hold them, to realize that they're visiting. They're impermanent. They're conditioned. They're not who we really are. To realize that when we're lost in them, they're states of suffering. They're not bad and wrong and shameful and horrible. They're very painful. And to realize that, in essence, we really just want to be happy. And the reason we get lost in these states is because we've confused them for real sources of happiness. We think that if we get angry enough, we'll be empowered. If we hold on tight enough, we'll keep change from happening. If we doubt enough, you know, we'll, be, we'll be wise, we'll be fulfilled. They're all kind of confusing. And so we work not to fight them and hate ourselves for them or to get lost in them and just succumb, but to be able to be mindful of them, to be able to use that very special kind of awareness to see them for the truth that they actually are. So let's sit together for a few minutes.